Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am so excited to share with you today's guest, Ellen Armour. Ellen, let me, before I introduce her and let her introduce herself, I, I got to tell the story of how we met originally. Um, it's been a minute. Uh, <laughs> we met when I produced a documentary called God and Gaze, Bridging the Gap in 2006. And I spent two years traveling with the movie, screening it around the country, different locations, universities, churches, conferences, et cetera. And I wanted to do an in-person version of the documentary. You know, there's like Aladdin, the movie, and then there's like Aladdin on ice, you know, that you go and see <laughs> the characters in person. So I wanted to do kind of a God and gaze on ice version, in-person version of the conference uh, based on the documentary. So people who are interviewed in the documentary would come in person and we had these tracks and we had music. And it was this incredible thing. And I was looking for partners and I chose Nashville because my sister had been going to school there and I had visitors several times. I got to know Nashville, Tennessee, fell in love with it. And I thought this is a great place to have this conference. And as I built relationships around Nashville, I got introduced to you and you were instrumental in helping pull off that conference and bringing people in who genuinely needed that safe space to have these conversations mm -hmm. for parents to be there, mm -hmm. um, for them to have a safe space mm -hmm. to be with each other, to wrestle with scriptures, for example. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, just, and, and, and safe spaces for people who are struggling themselves or recently come out uh, and as well as mentors mm -hmm. who've been out for a long time and have found a way to their religion of choice or a spiritual uh, relationship while being, you know, open uh, of who they are at, as LGBTQ+. So that's how we got connected. And we haven't seen each other mm -hmm. in a really long time until we had dinner just recently in, in Nashville when I came to town. And because it had been a long time since I'd been there and we reconnected, rekindled and you're, and you were telling me, well, you know, I got this book thing coming out. Um, and I'm like, wait, I've got this podcast thing coming out and here we are. So, <laughs> so with that, uh, please introduce yourself so people can have an understanding of, of your background and let then we're going to talk about the book. Yeah. Well, first, thank you so much, Kim, for inviting me to do this. I'm, you know, a big admirer of your work, and I know what your commitments are, and we share those. And so I feel like this is a great opportunity to um, talk about things in the book that may be relevant to, um, I hope it will be relevant to your, um, to the folks who watch your podcast. So um, I'm really excited about it. Um, so, yes, now to me. Um, <laughs> well, I am... Um, I am a uh, theologian, 
Um, that means a Christian theologian. That means that I am interested in um, how we should think theologically. Um, I always talk about theologians as being uh, very bossy people. Um, <laughs> we want to tell people how they should think <laughs> theologically. In this case, um, using the resources that Christianity has to offer, as that's my home tradition. Um, I, that said, I bring a lot of other um, approaches, academic approaches, scholarly approaches to those questions, um, including, for a long time, issues around and theories around race and sexuality, gender, um, and more, more recently got really interested in photography. I'll save that one for a, maybe a little bit later in the interview to kind of explain why. Um, but, uh, and so that led me to, um, into what's called visual culture theory, which I can talk about too a little bit. Um, so those are kinds of, I guess I could, you could even almost say that I've become a bit obsessed with photography and all of the things, or one thing I guess that unites my work is I'm always motivated by contemporary concerns that seem to me to be particularly uh, relevant, potent, important, urgent even for our mm -hmm. time and place. Mm -hmm. And I've always been interested, as I say, in issues of sexuality and race. So back when we met Kim and when we worked together, collaborated on that event, um, you know, that was a kind of iffy time for sure, but I would never have expected that we'd be back in a similar place now mm. where issues around race and sexuality are now so controversial again and where there is, and so divisive. So that's kind of, um, I think a really critical, critical issue for me, trying to address that as best I can, bringing the resources that I have as a theologian who engages with a variety of disciplines and who's obsessed with photography on in what I do. So how's that? <laughs> I can say professionally, I am, I am affiliated with Vanderbilt University. Um, I teach at Vanderbilt Divinity School, which is a kind of unique unicorn, you could even say, in the South, because it is a progressive, generally progressive divinity school. We train pastors, chaplains, a lot of activists, um, a lot of people who go on to start or work in nonprofit agencies. Um, and we have very public commitments around issues like uh, racial justice and um, justice for LGBTQIA people. So, um, so it's, a, it's my home in many ways, my academic home, and, um, and I'm delighted to be here. I also am the director of the Carpenter Program in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality, uh, which is how you and I collaborated, the actual kind of um, institutional home of our collaboration, which I'm also delighted to do. I identify myself as lesbian, and I have, again, been really interested and committed to, um, to justice for LGBTQIA folks um, from the beginning, at least as soon as I came out, which has been a been a minute too. So how's that for kind of, I think, a maybe full introduction to who I am? I can say more about my other books if you want, but that kind of gives you a sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, well, I have to ask the most obvious question is how you got obsessed with photography. 
And then if you can introduce us to visual cultural theory, and then we'll get into your book. Okay, sure. Happy to. Well, like I said, I kind of, you know, I'm always responding with my, in my work to um, issues that seem to me to be particularly of the moment and particularly urgent in this particular moment. And um, back in 2003, I got, you know, that's been a while, but um, 2003, some of the um, events, the huge events that were going on included um, what was happening at Abu Ghraib, um, that prison where, um, where um, prisoners, Arab prisoners were tortured, um, I think we could say, by American soldiers. And then that, uh, that photographic archive became public. So that was kind of what set me down that road of doing photographs. Um, and eventually that became um, the anchor of, uh, or one of the anchors of my previous book, which is called Signs and Wonders. And that book um, also was kind of an interesting how these things come together. Um, I, I wrote, a, wrote that chapter, or what became that chapter, wrote an essay about, uh, about Abu Ghraib. And then I got interested in some other issues. Around that same time was the consecration of Jean Robinson, the very first openly gay Episcopal bishop in the Anglican Church, Anglican Communion, that is, a global church. Around that same time, um, there you may remember the controversies around uh, Terry Schiavo, who was a severely disabled woman who um, her husband wanted to let her die. Her parents did not want that to happen, and that proved to be very controversial. Government got involved. It was kind of a mess. And it was also the time of Hurricane Katrina um, and the devastation that Hurricane Katrina wrought. So um, those four uh, events, kind of cataclysmic events, I think you could say, were the things that were really captivating me. And I was struggling with how to put them together. I had come up with this other, I mean, kind of other very nerdy sort of plan um, and insight that was about our relationship to modernity. And I was wanting to argue that modernity, one way to think about modernity was in terms of what I called a fourfold. It's a term I get from the philosopher Martin Heidegger, but it's not his fourfold exactly, but a fourfold of man and his others. And think about man in the narrow kind of sense of a cis, white, hetero, um, masterful subject the subject, the enlightenment subject in some ways, right? Um, So man and his others. So that's man, his sexed and raced others. Think about that in as pluriform a way as you can. His animal other and his divine other. That those four constituted a kind of hall of mirrors, if you will. And that really um, shaped how we understood ourselves. It shaped the taxonomies. That, that gave us certain kinds of identities and shaped our world in so many ways. And my claim was that that particular fourfold and what it had wrought was beginning to disintegrate and we were struggling to bear up under that disintegration and give birth to whatever was going to take its place. So I decided, I went to my publisher 
not the one who published the book in the end, but my former editor at a different press. And I said, this is what I want to do. And I want to talk about these four events and these four photographs probably connected to these four events. And he said, that sounds great. You just need a, a first chapter and then send me the proposal. And I'm like, okay, a first chapter. So I thought, okay, well, why don't I see if I can write a history of modern philosophy from Descartes to the present? And that will be my first chapter. Oh, my God. Well, you can. I know. Was that just, you know, stupid, stupid. <laughs> but I did try. And it was, in fact, an utter disaster. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, that's not going to work. So now what am I going to do? So I decided that what I would do was set that aside, set the first chapter aside. And because I decided to talk about photographs in each of these chapters, because photography was so important to each of these events, I thought, okay, I will, um, I don't want to treat these photographs like they're something, you know, just kind of present to hand, just ordinary things. I want to understand the history of photography, how photography works, how it conveys meaning, all that sort of stuff. So I went to a dear friend of mine, former colleague of mine, who's an art historian, and I said, tell me what I need to read. And he gave me a list of books, and I started to read them. And lo and behold, my fourfold, that man and his others thing, was all over the history of photography, all mm. over it. I was astonished, absolutely astonished. And I figured out how I could introduce or set the stage for this project, too, because one of the reasons that it was all over photography was because of the, the history of photography was or the way I could see that was through these two particular scholars of photography who used the work of Michel Foucault. Y'all don't need to know who that is, but it's a very important French philosopher whose work I taught a lot and studied when I was in grad school but I'd never written a word about him. So, but I'm like, that's exactly what I need. So again, I turned to another colleague, a dear friend of mine who was also a Foucault scholar. And I said, okay, what do I need to read? I mean, I could figure out what the main books were gonna be, the main texts in his oeuvre were gonna be, but the secondary literature, I was gonna need her help. And so that's what I did with that first, with the, with the book, it became a very different project. But, um, and, and it was, you know, it was really transformative for me. That's really how I became obsessed with photographs. Um, and I thought by the time I got to the end of that book, I really thought that I would be done with photographs. And I said certain things about what I thought I was gonna do next. Um, that basically were, would follow up from uh, where we were. And I was arguing that we needed a new ethos, a new way of being, a new way of thinking about being, a new way of doing that would enable us to live up to the vulnerability that modernity had tried to cover up and encourage us to ignore. And so I thought that was what I was going to do. Well... <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, it took a long time for that book to come out. You know, 2003 to 2005 is when these photographs are from. Um, and, but they, um, but it, you know, obviously having to 
apprentice myself and learn two, two entirely additional fields took a while. And then um, it was 2016 when the book came out. And it also taught me a lesson, too, because um, when you publish a book that's built around photographs and you want to publish the photographs, you've got to get permission. Yes, that's true. That <laughs> took, yes, and that took an additional year. Wow. I'm not kidding. To track down uh, where I needed to go to get the permission, et cetera, et cetera. It was really, it was quite an adventure. But still, so another reason I thought, okay, I'm going to let photography go because that is just a real, you know, pain to kind of to write about it. So, so that's kind of where I where I was, um, and where that kind of left me at the end, um, as I say, was with what I thought was going to be this next project. So, 2016. When the book comes out, I'd already started, you know, getting obsessed about some other issues. You might remember uh, the killing of Trayvon Martin. That was, I think that's 2014. I'm terrible with dates, but I think that's about when that was. Um, and the Trayvon, Trayvon Martin launched the Black Lives Matter movement. And we had all these police killings, too, of black men and black women. Let's not forget that. Um, that was happening. And so much, um, and it generated so much activism, actually, you know, a global protest movement, the largest protest movement in the world, really. And I thought that was a pretty remarkable uh, situation. And I wanted to be a part of that, too. And what struck me there was also that how important photography was to that. Now, not so much still photographs, which is what I had talked about, except in the case of, you know, Terry Schiavo, but videos were so crucial. You know, the filming of cell phone videos that filmed the, these killings were absolutely critical to it. And social media was also critical to it. Um, the sharing of those videos on social media is what really got the attention of folks who, you know, became part of that protest movement. And let's not forget, when we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, it started out hashtag Black Lives Matter, right? It started out itself on Twitter as, um, as a movement and became something very much more, much bigger than that. So um, I was like, okay, I can't let go of photography. Clearly, it's still important. Um, I'd like to see how much of what I said in Signs and Wonders or how much of that research that I did still applies because, you know, there are, there are some significant differences between digital photography and analog photography. But I wonder how much of it applies. And for me to do that, for me to get a sense of that, I needed to, um, once again, <laughs> update my research, right? So do the, do the deep dive into research and scholarship on digital photography. But I also needed to understand social media, too. And I needed to understand, do my research there, too. What's the scholarship on social media, too? And, you know, of course, by the time I began to get really into this, which is, you know, I was really fortunate in 2016, 2017 to be, or 2017, 2018, I can't remember. Yeah, 2017, 2018, 
to be part of an interdisciplinary fellowship group at the Robert Penn Warren Humanities Center here at Vanderbilt, um, which allowed me to devote more time to doing some of that early research, and it gave me conversation partners um, with my colleagues uh, to talk about some of these issues, because there were definitely points where we, where our work intersected with each other's. Um, and that was really exciting. Um, and, um, and that kind of got the whole thing jump-started in many ways. Um, and what I, and where you asked me about visual culture and what that means, um, I think what's important to, for us to understand, I mean, it seems kind of like a, a weird, a weird word to think about, but if you think about just how vital photography is to our culture, um, in many ways, I mean, it's always been since it's, since its inception, that's what signs and wonders was about. Um, and now how important digital photography is to our culture. We don't go anywhere, most of us, without a little camera in our pockets, in our backpacks, in our hands. I'm always, you know, kind of astonished at when I walk around to see, or really when I'm anywhere, to see how many people are paying more, much more attention to whatever they're doing on their phones than they are to what's going on in the world around them. So I think we have to talk about a visual culture. And, you know, we've shaped this culture, but it is shaping us. And we need to understand how that culture works if we're going to navigate it and live in it in ways that are going to help us thrive, right? In ways that are life-giving rather than death-dealing, to go back to the photographs and videos that kind of kept me obsessed and are keeping me obsessed. So, and fortunately, it turns out there is this interdisciplinary field called visual culture studies. Yay! <laughs> so once again, that's another, you know, deep dive for me to get into visual culture studies and understand it and use it in the ways that I do in, in both of these books. Beautiful. So that's a, that's a great layup to your most recent book that just came out in July, 2023. Mm -hmm. um, I find mm -hmm. it fun that you had the launch date as Independence Day, July 4th, even though my, my, my relationship to, to 4th of July has changed dramatically as I've grown into my adulthood, however, but mm -hmm. I still am all for liberation, yep. but, but for everyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so... Yeah. You yes. know, liberation is, is one of your themes. It's one of the, you know, one of the, the takeaways that you're talking about in your new book. And it's called Seeing and yeah. Believing. Now, I, I caught the nuance there in your title, because if I was just going to yeah. roll it off my tongue, I would say seeing is believing. But you titled it Seeing yeah. and Believing. So talk about that nuance in your title. Yep, yep. Well, actually, when during that fellowship year, um, I was planning to title it Seeing is Believing for exactly that reason, because it seems like, you know, we see, we believe what we see, right? Um, and, but I ended up going with Seeing and Believing because I wanted to trouble that assumption, you know? Um, 
break that by and yeah. and because yeah and because it gets at what is i think a particularly critical question for us when it comes to social media and what we see on social media can we believe what we see right mm-hmm. that is can we trust in the truth of a given photograph um can we trust that it was that it actually is representing it's what I call that then there, right? Um, in other words, you know, we assume, was it actually taken by a person, right? Holding up their cell phone, let's say, in front of an actual object and clicking the, it's not really a shutter, but it sounds like a shutter, clicking the shutter. Can we trust that? Or is it something, you know, is it, is it, a, is, has it been altered? Is it a fake in some way? Um, well, that's always been a question with photography. You know, can we trust a photograph? But that those concerns about what I call photographic truth have been, if anything, amplified and accelerated by digital photography. At least back in the day, it took a while. You know, it took some skill to manipulate a photograph, right? Now we can do that on our phones. And what's even more amazing is, I didn't know this until I got into the, really got into the research, but you can actually create a digital photograph out of whole cloth, out of whole digital cloth, just out of code. And of course, this has become a more critical issue too with AI and now our concerns about deep fakes, right? Mm -hmm. And the political use that can be made of completely faked photographs that will, um, you know, that people use to, to, to generate outrage and to generate whatever they, you know, whatever kind of particular response they want. So that was one reason I called it seeing and believing, because it is a question. Can we believe what we see? But the other piece of it, too, is believing what we see sometimes often prompts us to feel a certain way and to take action. And that's what I call photographic affect. Um, So if we believe what we see, we may feel a certain way and we may act a certain way. Um, My example of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement is one, right? A lot of people were motivated to take up a protest because of what they saw on social media, the videos that they saw, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, So that's also a huge issue, too. And even when it comes to deep fakes, I don't know if you remember Pizzagate, but um, this was, uh, Mm -hmm. and there's still, it's a QAnon conspiracy now, I think, right, that there's Mm -hmm. this cabal of uh, global leaders that are um, sex trafficking with children and, Demonic, and this one guy, yeah, got caught up in that and thought he and had and believed that somebody had posted. I think it was photographs too that posted a particular location, a pizza restaurant, wherever he lived, and he went there with guns and was going to shoot and kill people. Um, mercifully, that got stopped before anything terrible happened. But um, but you know that's that's it can really can create all kinds of terrible things. Um, So that's why I called it seeing and believing, to separate those two and to really think through um, both of them, 
How do we see? What do we see? What do we think seeing is? What is it really? And what about believing? What makes us believe what we see? And how can we pull these things apart? And I also felt like um, I, I turned to religion. This is one thing I could bring as a theologian to this issue is, um, you know, it might be that religion, particularly Christianity in this case, because it's my home tradition, could help us with that question. Because religions, all religions, have been wrestling with the relationship between seeing and believing since forever. <laughs> Good point. Let's just take Christianity as the example, right? Yeah. Christianity gets started because of a crisis around seeing and believing. What do we make of an empty tomb? Right? There's supposed to be a body in there. It's not there. Now what do we do? Right? <clears throat> now, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. It's a complicated history. But nonetheless, this is, this is really crucial stuff. Um, and so my thought was that religion could be helpful, and particularly maybe Christianity could be helpful in Christian theology. So that's kind of why I called it that and um, what I hope to do with it and what I hope I do do with it. Um, the, uh, I can go on about the book now for a bit more if you'd like. Well, let me get into some specific questions of what you talk okay. about here. The subtitle um, okay. of Seeing and Believing is Religion, Digital, Visual, Culture, and Social Justice. So <clears throat> the idea of religion right now, you know, there's a lot of mm -hmm. people who are looking at, especially Christianity. Uh, you were talking about that mm -hmm. as something to run far, far away from due to mm -hmm. Christian nationalism yeah. that's on the on the rise yeah. and influencing yeah. politics, which is taking away rights for LGBTQ plus mm -hmm. and, and voter suppression yep. and, and the like, uh, women's right mm -hmm. to choose and bodily autonomy. And so mm -hmm. religion, social justice and visual uh, visual culture all in the same title at this time in history is quite bold. <laughs> so let me, you, you do <laughs> yes, get into AI a little bit more here. Um, so I encourage readers when you get the book, really look into the, in, into artificial intelligence and what she's talking about within AI. <clears throat> um, I'm going to jump ahead to a particular question that I have here, but one of the, one of the points uh, I think you just mentioned that, so I'm going to skip that one. I mean, you're kind of reading my mind of the things that I underlined in your book. Um, let me flip to the next dog-eared page. Okay, so let's get into, you do talk about race a lot uh, throughout the book. Uh, mm -hmm. as, and and you, you mentioned the other isms as well. But in particular, racism mm -hmm. is something that you focused on mm -hmm. using uh, the situations, the traumatic events around George, the murder of George Floyd, as you, as you talked about, mm -hmm. uh, as well as mm -hmm. Dylan Roof, which is mm -hmm. precisely what you're talking about here uh, as kind of the crux of your mm -hmm. book. There was religion. That's right. It happened in a, in a Christian church. It was racist. Yeah. It was to create a yeah. race war. And it was an indoctrination yeah. causing action out of the visuals that Dylan Roof yeah. um, uh, mm -hmm. saw and believed. So yeah. that, that particular situation really encompasses uh, what you're trying to say here. But speak a little bit more about it, because one of the things that you also add to this conversation around mm -hmm. that scenario and that kind of bringing that scenario kind of brings all of your themes together into a real life example mm -hmm. of 
what can happen when things go really, really horribly wrong. Um, but it's this idea that you talk about of the white gaze, and that's G-A-Z-E, white gaze. In my line of work, in uh, DEI communications, uh, we talk about it from the lens of majority coding, C-O-D-I-N-G, meaning that most of our, our organizational communications is written through a white gaze, through a majority coding um, a way that we are writing through that lens and that experience, expecting it to go over well every single time. And that's not happening. And that's not possible. Like literally a client came to me and said, we've gotten the feedback that we are writing for a white audience and we don't know what that means. And I said, I, I, I got it. Yeah. I, I understand what's happening here. So uh, with partners going in and working with clients to bring the lived experience, bring um, bring my experience, and helping clients see what that white gaze, G-A-Z, is, that majority coding is on our communications to ensure that we are checking that bias. And often those kinds of communications lead to very performative, harmful even uh, communications uh, that really, really misses the mark when audience members and, and employees and customers need organizations to be on the mark, especially in social justice mm -hmm. crisis situations. Mm -hmm. So they can end up causing way more harm than good. So let's go to mm -hmm. your example here and the Dylan Roof yeah. situation um, and, and its intersection with white gaze. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, so, if you think back to um, to you know where I started with um, with Trayvon Martin and that launching the Black Lives Matter movement, um, it also is what. Uh, well, let, actually, let me go back another step. To I talked about photographic truth and photographic affect, how photographs move us emotionally and to take action. Um, so we talked about uh, Trayvon Martin's photograph and how that helped motivate people or what happened to him helped motivate people uh, to start the Black Lives Matter movement. The thing is, photographs don't move us all in the same way. And for all any number of people who got excited about, um, about well, got, I guess, outraged really about what happened to George Floyd and what happened to Trayvon and what happened to all these other uh, black people who had um, encountered violence of one sort or another. Um, there were plenty of other people who just were like, well, well, whatever. And then there was Dylan Roof. Um, Dylan Roof was motivated to start looking on, in fact, to start Googling black on black crime, is my recollection, by uh, the what happened with Trayvon Martin. And that, that uh, Googling send him down a deep dive because unfortunately, and here we could get into how <laughs> to algorithmic bias, basically, um, because he, he got um, onto sites that were really fake news, essentially pretending to be um, pretending to be legit, but they were basically white supremacist sites. And that led him down this deep rabbit hole and he became radicalized and that led him to, as you say, um, try to start a race war by um, by killing these nine worshiping Christians, black Christians at Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina. And that in turn, seeing 
hearing about that, reading about that on social media, motivated a man in New Zealand to do the same thing in a mosque and kill uh, kill a number of Islamic worshipers, and, and it might have been actually two mosques, and to film it live on Facebook. So that's <laughs> this is exactly the kind of um, the kind of um, dramatic struggle that we have that we've got to, you know, we've got to pay attention to seeing and believing in order to, to wrestle with. Um, so um, now I've forgotten what your question was, having talked about that. Oh, it was about the white gaze, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so particularly when it comes to, um, comes to racism, we need to understand how we see and how important how we see is and how we've been trained to see is to how we see. Um, you know, and when I'm talking about the ways that we have been entrained to see, visual images have been really critical to that. So for example, when we see an image of a young black man in a gray hoodie, how do we respond to that image? Remember that, um, that the man who killed Trayvon Martin was seeing that just exactly that you know, a teenager, black teenager, walking through a white neighborhood wearing a gray hoodie. And he, his assumption was that's criminality right there. And a lot of us make that assumption too. So how is it then that we have been trained to see that that's what we assume when we see that image? Um, and the work that's really important to me and really helpful to me that I use in uh, seeing and believing is by the philosopher George Yancey, who teaches at Emory. And uh, Yancey is also someone, although he, uh, he writes for, I mean, he's an academic, so, you know, he's like me, he's a big nerd, but he also writes for a public audience, too. And he talks about um, writing a, a column, maybe a kind of op-ed piece for the New York Times um, called, um, oh, I don't remember what it was called now, but it, oh, it was a love letter to white people. And trying to convey the sympathy, you know, from a sympathetic perspective, I understand how this works. I really do. And you're not responsible for it. You know, you've just been enculturated in this particular way to see. But you need to take responsibility for it. You need to understand it. You need yes. to understand where it comes from. And then try to be different in the world. And he got so much pushback for that. You know, threats online, all kind of stuff for that. Um, and so all of that, just that reaction, that response, you know, again, I think is, um, is just emblematic of how deeply white people have been entrained to think that we are not the problem, you know, um, that black people are the problem. It's not us. So, um, and what's crucial about the white gaze to me, too, is it isn't simply a matter of seeing. Um, it is as much a matter of doing, being, feeling, knowing as it is of seeing. One of the powerful moments in, in the book that I used by Yancey called The White Gaze, one of the most powerful moments is when he talks about how even good white people, right, in this case, um, people who are actually wanting to be, these are, these are people who are from the 1960s, women from the 1960s specifically, as I recall, who 
are want to be allies with black people. And they, when brought to a situation where they were invited to share food with black people, they couldn't do it. They could not eat that food because of how they'd been trained. Um, and if you think about, you know, he also talks about the ways that we just physically, and oh, I should also talk about this too. Seeing, again, remember I'm saying, is about knowing, doing, and being. So it's not simply about sitting back here in my, you know, in my recliner, looking at the newspaper and seeing a photograph of Trayvon Martin or a photograph of, or watching the video of um, the killing of George Floyd or whatever, right? It's not just about that. But seeing is something that is an embodied activity that we engage in in the world all the time. And another way that Yancey talks about this is to think about, you know, what happens when you are walking down the street yourself or walking into an elevator and you encounter a black person in that elevator? How often do uh, white people back off, you know, kind of find some way, pull themselves in, in a sense, to protect themselves? And he's experienced that plenty of times, right, um, in his own existence. So, um, so understanding, again, how unconscious this is. This is not necessarily conscious behavior at all, but how unconscious it is um, and how, that, how deeply rooted that means it is in us is also a really important um, issue if we're going to address the uh, legacies of racism and the ongoing effects and impacts of racism in our time and place, not just in history, but in our time and place. Another way that um, these issues come up too is in, you know, I talked about, um, um, you know, Dylan Roof's deep dive. Um, if I can, I'd like to say a little bit about algorithmic bias too, right? Um, another really helpful book for me is um, is 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 um, algorithms of oppression, and one of the analyses that um, that that author does, Sophia Noble does, in that book is talk about the problems with um, the problems with digital cameras too, right? So um, she analyzes. Let me back up. She analyzes multi levels of um, of oppression. So if we go back to Dylan Roof and what made it possible for him to get radicalized online. She talks about an incident herself where she was anticipating um, inviting her niece and a, her niece's best friend over to um, hang out. And so she thought, well, I'll Google, I'll Google um, black, black girls, young black girls, and see if I can find some cool activities to do. She Googled that and what showed up were porn sites. Oh my porn God. sites. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, have human biases baked into them. And it's really crucial that the uh, creators of those algorithms recognize it. And they do from time to time. The outrage that she was able to generate, you know, protests with Google made Google take action. Now, when you Google young black girls, that's not what you see. What you see is actually really good stuff you know, about black girls. Um, so just as one example, but another example is the pixel camera. When it first came out, it took a two or three years before um, engineers figured this out, but it did not, um, it did not respond to darker skin 
as well, anywhere close to as well as it did to lighter skin. Now that could have been addressed early on had somebody just thought, we need to test this on a variety of skin colors, right? And that way we'll know whether it works. Well, it's been corrected now and Pixel does a much better job responding to different skin colors and skin tones. But those are just serious examples of, um, of the ways that, uh, that um, system, systemic racism can get, you know, and our own biases, the ways that we have been trained, can impact what we see in ways we don't even know, we're not even aware of as we interact with social media or as we Google this, that, or the other thing, or as we shoot pictures with our Google Pixel, right? Um, so the white gaze is really embedded deeply in our culture. And because it's embedded so deeply in our culture, it's gonna show up in our visual culture. It's gonna show up in our digital culture. It's gonna show up in ourselves too. So knowing that, being aware of that, and being on the lookout for it, you know, get, what I'm trying to do in part in this book is give people the digital literacy that they need, the photographic literacy that they need um, if they're going to um, inhabit these, you know, digital worlds um, with the kind of um, wisdom, ethical wisdom that I think most people really want to use to, uh, to navigate their worlds. And as communicators, we are constantly pulling photos. We are, you know, mm -hmm. from stock image libraries, we may be mm -hmm. doing cultural moment posts uh, regarding Black History Month, um, disability awareness, pride, etc. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes mm -hmm. we will grab historic images from the Stonewall Inn, etc. Mm -hmm. And there's there is a lot of imagery that we try to evoke emotion when we're putting together our communications. We are trying to tell a story. What's the saying? A picture is worth a thousand words, you know, and in today's audience, lack of attention. Uh, so we, we will turn to images to as a replacement basically, and sometimes or an augmentation to our, to the content that we're putting together. So there's a lot of weight to your point of, of us, putting into what we are interpreting this photo as, which can have a different impact, an unintended impact, if the photography, if the imagery that we choose is solely from a white gaze. It can have unintended consequences, unconscious consequences. It could be telling a different story. Um, same with our content, which I found in many, many CEO problematic um uh, emails after the murder of George Floyd in 2020, which prompted me to write my book um, in addition mm -hmm. to the black squares that were posted. So mm -hmm. this is something that communicators really need to be paying attention to and being very thoughtful in their choices around mm -hmm. the images that they use and the kinds of stories that, and the interpretations may be different uh, of, of those images, especially understanding the historical and social context of those pictures being taken I've shown in some of my trainings, Ellen, you get a kick out of this, that there's, there, I've shown these examples of photos where there's one, um, so there was a photo, there was a photo of Greta Thornburg and several of her uh, colleagues all around her age. Uh, and like four of, there was, I think there was four or five of them in the photo. And there was a, a 
a photo that was put out with different, you know, articles of these four girls. All of them were white. The actual photo that was taken included a black one, a girl, a black girl at the end of, of the row of white girls. The black girl was cut out of the photo. It was edited to not include her. And that was an intentional, that's, that's not what we're talking about here when it comes to communicators. That was mm-hmm. intentional, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the BS that us as communicators need to understand and not just take mm-hmm. some photographs, you know, for granted. Um, some mm-hmm. actually could have been altered by the time it got to us and mm-hmm. having relationships and having social agreements with our brand, our marketing, our, our vendors mm-hmm. who are videographers and photographers to ensure that we are mm-hmm. telling the whole story, the accurate story of, of people mm-hmm. that are involved in the events that we have, you know, recorded um, for our internal or external purposes. So I have a couple of more questions for you. One is mm-hmm. <laughs> about one of your chapter titles, which really grabbed my attention. Um, (laughs) the chapter title is photographic insurrection. Now that term insurrection has a whole new meeting for me since, uh, January 6th insurrection. So that can be a trigger word us in, in this day and time in our social and historical context. So putting photographic insurrection as an entire chapter is, is provocative. It's, it's quite interesting. So talk about what, what do you mean? And what do you, what are you trying to say with that chapter title as well as the chapter itself? Yeah, that's a great question. I really wrestled with whether to use that term um, for that very reason, but I wanted to keep it and to repurpose it um, and maybe salvage it, redeem it a bit um, if that's possible to do. Um, And I'll put the context this way. Signs and Wonders, in Signs and Wonders, my previous book about photography, I was really mostly concerned with what I call their photographic subjection. That is how we've been entrained to see in these particular ways. Um, And that was my focus there. But what I'm really interested in with seeing and believing is, again, what I'm calling photographic insurrection. How can we break with the way that we've been entrained to see in ways that will um, enable us to contribute to, you know, to be better people, really, and to contribute to the good in the world. One of the one of the um, sentences that I outlined that I underlined in your chapter uh, from photographic insurrection was, "I offer photographic insurrection as a form of ethical hacking." Yeah, interesting. Tell us more. That's a great, that's a great, yeah, really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So ethical, so I talk about photographic insurrection as a form of ethical hacking, um, which is really, um, you know, again, an attempt to repurpose something, right? Um, We think of hacking as a kind of negative thing, but if we, I'm getting this term in part from another colleague of mine, Kate Ott, who does a lot of writing too on technology and religion Um, And it's how can we as individuals then engage with what we see in a way that um, that doesn't conform to what, you know, to the white gaze, to the ways that we've been entrained to see. Um, That's really the crucial thing. And I'm thinking about this as a form of ethical hacking 
Because again, we're engaging with most of these photographs these days on social media. Uh, so the technology is really, really important to it. And we talk about social media as our new public square. And it is in many ways, right? Because it's, it's, where, we, it's where we hang out most of the time and where we meet each other so much and engage with each other in so, so many ways. Um, and it's a visually saturated public square too, right? Um, I don't see, at least on my Facebook um, account, I don't see anything that doesn't have some kind of visual image attached to it. And that's true even, I mean, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but um, I never I. was on it a whole lot. But <laughs> yeah. I know, but you know, there again, lots of visual images. And then there are social media platforms specifically created to focus on visual imagery, like Instagram and Snapchat. So, um, so this is really going to be the place where we're going to face the ethical problems, the ethical challenges. So um, how can, what my interest is with for the photographic insurrection is to think about how we can use how we see, how we can um, engage what we see and how we see it in a way that prompts us to do the work that's going to be required to address racism or other issues around injustice. And with photographic insurrection, I, what I propose to do in that chapter, or what I propose, or what I offer, is a repertoire of gazes, a repertoire of ways of seeing that are drawn from religion, religious ways of seeing, Christian ones specifically, but aren't at all uh, limited to Christian people or even people of faith. I get that visual repertoire from another scholar, David Morgan, um, at Duke University. It's really great work. And uh, from a book of his called The Embodied Eye. And he distills these ways of seeing from Christian ways of seeing. But he is very clear that these are also present in other religious traditions. And most importantly, that these are ways of seeing that all, quote unquote, come naturally to us. And I'm, being, I'm putting that in scare quotes a bit for philosophical reasons. You don't need to mm -hmm. worry about it. Um, mm -hmm. But that means these are ways of seeing that we're already using. We just don't think about them when we use them. And thus, and if they can be disruptive, which is what I'm arguing they can be, um, we then it means we've got the tools in our toolbox, in our visual toolbox, to be able to see differently, to participate in ethical hacking. Um, and what I... What I turn to in these particular ways of seeing, what unites all of them, is not just that they're religious ways of seeing, not even just that they come naturally to all of us, but that they, because they're religious ways of seeing, they disrupt the hierarchy of seer over seeing that is really, really central to how we encounter things in, online, right? Visual images online. So if we think back to um, what happens when we encounter an image that really grabs our attention, really grabs our attention, like those videos or like, um, like you know, Dylan Roof's, for that matter, Dylan Roof's um, selfie, um, what can we, what we need to pay attention to what that's, what's grabbing our attention. So that's the first piece of photographic insurrection. 
What we tend to do when we're on social media and encounter photographs is just scroll, scroll, scroll. And when something captures our attention, this is a real opportunity for us to slow down and really look, to really look at what the photograph is showing us and what it is that's moving us about this photograph. And I did an experiment with my students in a class, um, a class specifically on theology and visual culture and social media. At the very beginning of the class, I showed them the selfie of Trayvon Martin, which has nothing to do with the um, event of his murder, but became an iconic element of the protest movement, Black Lives Matter protest movement. You remember, it's a, it's a selfie of him um, uh, wearing a black, wearing a gray hoodie, right? And looking, we're looking pensively and seriously at you, you know? And how many people did we see take selfies of themselves, right? in exactly the same thing, in solidarity with Trayvon Martin and with the Black Lives Matter, including President Obama, you might remember. Anyway, I showed them Trayvon Martin's selfie, and I showed them the selfie that Dylan Roof posted with his manifesto, which is a roof sitting on a rock in front of a fire, as I recall, holding a Confederate flag and a gun, and also looking straight at you, straight at the viewer, as if to say, okay, this is what are you going to do? I asked my students to write down how they responded to whichever one of those photographs they felt like they could look at, right? And then to hang on to what they wrote because I was going to bring it, bring it back, ask them to recall that later on in the class. So toward the end of the semester, I did that after we'd done all this reading. I asked them to bring back um, what they had done, what they'd read, what they'd said and written. And now that we had read, um, now that we had these, this visual repertoire available to us, um, to do two things. First, I asked them to, um, to look at the photographs and look at and read what they'd written and see whether or not any of the visual gazes, any of these gazes seemed to fit how they had seen, how they had engaged with the photograph to begin with. And to a person, they all identified one or another of those gazes that actually did name how they had and describe how they had responded to that photograph and how they had worked, looked at it to begin with. Then I asked them to pick another gaze deliberately, choose one, and to engage that photograph again. Now with this gaze, and thanks to my intrepid um, uh, teaching assistant that semester, Debbie Brubaker, I have to do a shout out for Debbie, um, who also was a communications professional, by the way, anyway, before she went back to grad school. We're everywhere, Ellen. We're everywhere. I know. You are. <laughs> anyway, Debbie, um, Debbie had created a set of prompts for the students to kind of help them, you know, think about how to use those gazes. And I've included that in the book. So... No, I want this to be a practical thing. You don't have to read. I've given you a brief summary of all the gazes in the book. You can try out the prompts and see if it works for you. Anyway, back to my students. So I asked them to do that, gave them those prompts. And again, to a person, they found that engaging whichever one of those photographs they had looked at before, using this other gaze, 
broadened their insights, changed what they saw, deepened what they saw in ways that were that were potentially transformative for them. So, um, and you might think, well, of course they did. You've taught them all this stuff all this semester. What else are they going to do? But what's interesting is not one of them made any, they made no reference at all to anything that we had read or discussed in class. They all talked about very personal responses, their own history, their own recollections of other, other instances where, you know, other things that memories that these photographs invoked. So that experience, and again, it's a small, you know, it's a small experiment, but that, um, but that experiment um, suggests to me that maybe I'm on to something here, that maybe something like um, these, this visual repertoire of gazes can um, be useful in disrupting the ways that we ordinarily see and in making the most of the opportunities that social media and digital photography offer us, as well as helping us navigate the serious challenges they present in ways that can advance causes of social justice. In this case, racism in particular, right? One of the most recalcitrant of the forms of social justice that we have to deal with. So, you know, it's not gonna be the panacea. It's not gonna solve the problem of racism, but maybe it will prompt folks who use them and who engage them to, um, to, to do the deeper dive that's gonna be required if we're going to um, work on and become, you know, a better world, a more ethical world, a place where, you know, wouldn't it be nice where racism didn't exist anymore, where um, the various forms of social injustice were truly on their way out, <laughs> ideally never to return again. Um, but, you know, wouldn't that be great? Thank you. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for bringing this to our attention to really look at ways to be more consciously aware of what we are looking mm -hmm. at and recognizing our interpretation of what we're seeing based on our bias, on our mm -hmm. limited experience and how as communicators, mm -hmm. we can mitigate it. We must mitigate it. And we must understand that there can be a variety of interpretations on the images that we use. That is one of the benefits mm -hmm. of having a representative communications team, for example, and having relationships with people who can continue to challenge us to be more consciously aware of what we're saying, uh, in, in whether it's in visuals or in, in copy and content. So I'll wrap up with a question that I ask every guest, and that is, how do we, especially, you know, with this religion, digital, visual, culture, and social justice, seeing and believing what does it look like, sound like, feel like to communicate like we give a damn? What do we need to do as communicators? It's a great question. Yeah, it's a great, great question. Um, well, I think in terms of, I'll start out by talking, talking to professional communicators a bit, right? I think I want to encourage you to do your homework, to do your due diligence. You know, the importance of, I hope one of the things that this book does is, um, call more attention to the importance of, um, of visual imagery to communication and to, to, to kind of emphasize just how critical it is to think about what you're sharing, where it came from, what is it saying, what are you expecting it to, um, to, to what kinds of 
reactions are you anticipating that it will evoke? And what kinds of reactions are you, um, might you be overlooking? Um, I think it will be important to ensure that you test those assumptions or those questions out with a diverse audience too. Being in conversation with, um, with people from different perspectives, with people from different backgrounds is going to be really crucial, you know, I think, to, to good communications and paying attention to that. Um, when it comes to all of us as individuals, you know, that's the other, you know, the other kind of complicated thing, too, is to remember, you know, one of the things that, I mean, I talked about social media as our new public square, one of the things that I think is kind of particularly troubling about that particular public square is we tend to be pretty callous about how we communicate on that, on those platforms. Um, they are, they are not well suited to the kind of um, nuanced conversation that you and I are having right now. Right. And there's something about um, I think not being in the embodied presence of your conversation partners um, that I think makes us be more callous and casual when we're interacting on social media. Uh, so I think it's going to be really critical too, then to, to really not just slow down and think about how we respond to what we see, but to slow down and think about how we, what we communicate when we write, something on social media, when we post something on social media, you know, um, to really think about that. And, um, and that will be communicating like we give a damn, you know, <laughs> not just to simply, okay, just unleash whatever we're feeling at that particular moment, outrage or whatever it is, because that really is what tends to be what, what we do. Right. And, you know, the, the, the multinational corporations that, um, run these platforms. We call them our new public square, but it's not. It's privately owned, right? All of these, uh, all of these platforms are privately owned. And what they want is our eyes. They want our attention. It's an attention economy. And what they find gets our eyes is outrage. So we need to be aware of that, you know? And they don't want us to pay attention for long either. They want us to move on to the next thing really quickly. So paying attention is really critical to communicating like we give a damn. We've got to pay attention like we give a damn if we're going to communicate like we give a damn too. So I guess that's what I would say. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Letting ourselves be in control of the technology and, uh, and not having the technology be in control of us mm -hmm. and dictating our Perfect. behavior. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Presence, yeah. mindset. Mindful presence, conscious awareness, all the things. How can people stay in touch with you and follow your ongoing work and also dip into the library of other things that you've published? Mm -hmm. Well, one way to, um, to do that is um, to keep, I, like I, I am active on some social media sites um, and, I, and one way to follow, I, well, actually, I've got to figure out if this is going to happen or not. But I, I know that my press is going to post some, uh, like the link to this podcast and to some other podcasts, keep you up to date on what's going on and what I'm up to. Um, and those are the best ways to do it, really, because I like to keep my social media sites just about 
friends and family and not about professional yeah. stuff as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, Ellen, you actually so, froze right when you said what you wanted people to contact you with. Uh, do you mind saying that okay. again? <laughs> no, no problem. No problem. Um, so the best place to keep up with what I'm doing is probably going to be through, um, through the Vanderbilt Divinity School website, because that will be, there's my biographies there, my um, bibliography too um, is there. And then also in, on Amazon too, there are, you know, obviously links to all my books. You can get them there. Um, the Columbia University Press website, which has published both of these particular books, um, has good information about them. And um, I think that they're going to also post, hopefully, links to this podcast and some other podcasts that I've done. Uh, so uh, so I think there are a variety of ways of kind of keeping up a bit with what's going on with me. Beautiful. Ellen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you writing this book and challenging us challenging us to really break through our, our biases and be more critical thinkers when it looks at, mm -hmm. when we're looking at the kind of stories and the impact that we're desiring with the intent that we use uh, specifically mm -hmm. photographs and, and videos. Thank you very much for your time. Glad to do it. And thanks again, Kim, for the invitation. This has been a great conversation. Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one -on -one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.